Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And in case you use one of our Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 858. As we continue making our way through Luke's Gospel account, we've come to a transition point uh, through the first two chapters of the story. Uh, Luke has been setting the stage uh, for the life and ministry of Jesus to unfold in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, and that's where we're headed next. But first, as we've already seen, the ministry of Jesus is going to be preceded by the ministry of John the Baptist. And so this morning we're going to read about how John fulfilled his role of preparing the way for the coming Messiah. And so we're in Luke chapter 3, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 1. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so as we move into chapter 3, we fast forward in the story about 18 years from where we left off last week, and we see that much has changed. Uh, Tiberius, the stepson of Augustus, is now the Roman emperor. Uh, King Herod the Great has died, and his territory has been divided into uh, different tetrarchies, which are each governed by a different ruler, uh, one man named Pontius Pilate, and then two of Herod's sons, Antipas and Philip. Luke also mentions a man named Licinius, who rules over the district of Abilene, and then he refers to the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, the reality is that there could only be one high priest at a time, and at this point, the Romans had actually removed Annas from that position. Uh, but Annas was, was much like a mob boss, and so even though the Romans replaced him with his son-in-law Caiaphas, uh, Annas continued to exert a significant amount of influence, particularly in Jerusalem, which has uh, led many people to continue to refer to him as the high priest, as Luke does here. Now, several of these leaders are going to have significant roles to play as the story unfolds, but the main idea in this opening is that these are the circumstances under which John is called to begin his ministry. And so you may remember that we left John back at the end of chapter 1, and we saw in verse 80 uh, that Luke said that as he grew up, he went out to live in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And now here at the end of verse 2, God finally calls him to begin his ministry. And in fact, verses 1 and 2 are in standard form for a prophetic cause. So if you read through the Old Testament prophets, Malachi being the only exception, uh, then you see that almost always the biblical authors frame a prophet's call, and they, they time it based on who's ruling uh, at, the, on, at the, the time that the Lord calls that prophet. And they always identify both the prophet and his father and where he lives at the time, just as, as Luke does here. 
So the word of God comes to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is John's official summons to begin his long-awaited ministry. And we'll see what he does as we pick up again, beginning in verse 3. It says, He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So as we pick up again in verse 3, we see that as John conducted his ministry, he traveled throughout all the region around the Jordan River. Now looking back at our map up on the screen, uh, you'll see that the Jordan River, which I have highlighted in yellow, uh, goes from a little bit past our screen at the uh, Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea, about 120 miles, and, uh, and this is the area of John's ministry on either side of that yellow line. And at the end of verse 3, we see that the essence of John's ministry is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so I want to break that description down into parts and then put it back together again. And so first of all, John's ministry is described as a proclamation. In other words, he is going around announcing an official message, right, informing people and calling them to respond to what he says. Secondly, his proclamation is about a baptism, which refers to the act of, of dunking or immersing someone underwater for, for ritual purposes. Third, and importantly, this baptism is characterized by repentance. And we've said before that repentance is a change of mind that inevitably leads to a change of lifestyle. Right? Repentance is coming to see things the way that God sees them, and then conforming our lives to be in line with that perspective. And so while the act of baptism is the focal point of John's ministry, the purpose of the baptism, or perhaps the motivation behind the baptism, is that it is to be an expression of repentance. And then finally, we see that the end goal of this baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, this baptism of repentance is an appeal for forgiveness for all the things that the people have done that they shouldn't have done, and all the things they haven't done that they should have done. Now, this is interesting, because as John speaks of forgiveness of sins, he's not at the temple, and he's not calling the people to go and make a sacrifice which would be the normal place and and action that would be done to to make atonement for sin. Instead, he's out in the middle of nowhere calling the people to express their repentance through the act of baptism. What we need to understand here is that John expects the people to recognize 
There is a new era dawning where our relationship with God is no longer going to be determined by the Old Testament system. This is even more clear when we consider the fact that Jews did not get baptized. Jews did not get baptized. There were certainly a number of ritual washings uh, that the Jews would, would perform to purify themselves, but Jews did not get baptized. Gentiles who wanted to become Jews would get baptized in addition to receiving the rite of circumcision. And so you see, baptism was an action of those who wanted to come into the community of God's people. And so by calling Jews to be baptized, John again is communicating that God is doing a new thing. And that those who want to be among God's people going forward must make a fresh start through repenting of sin, which again is demonstrated through baptism. Now in verses 4 through 6, Luke provides some context, and he explains what's happening, right? We already know from going through Malachi at the end of last year that John's ministry is the fulfillment of Malachi's promise that God would send a prophet who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. But here Luke reveals that John also fulfills a prophecy of Isaiah. And so in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, as the Lord speaks of the future restoration of his people, he refers to someone who is going to, again, prepare the way and and announce that the time has come and lead the people to get ready for what God is about to do for them. He refers to the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So we've talked previously about the job of a royal forerunner. When a king in the ancient world was traveling from place to place, there would be someone who went before him to prepare the way. And that forerunner's job was to fill in potholes and to remove obstructions out of the roadway so that the king had a smooth journey. And that's the the picture of John's role here. But behind this metaphor, we need to understand that when it comes to the Messiah, what really needs to be prepared isn't a literal road. It's the hearts of his people. The hearts of the people need to be prepared. There are a lot of things that need to be straightened out and fixed among God's people. As we saw in Malachi, for centuries the Jews have been characterized by by apathy, spiritual apathy and hypocrisy in worship at their best, and by unrepentant sin and idolatry at their worst. And so much like a hospital patient needs to be prepped before they are ready to go back for surgery or for some other procedure, John's role is to put the people in the best possible position to be ready to benefit from the work of the coming Messiah. Now because of this, you'll see the the therefore in the beginning of verse 7, we see that as crowds of people respond to John's ministry and come out to be baptized by him, he calls out against any element of insincerity among them. He calls them a, a brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. We see that John doesn't pull punches. He doesn't sugarcoat things. John is not someone who modern church growth experts would consider to be seeker sensitive. He tells the people, if you want to be on board with what God is doing, then you need to get on board. 
And the way that, that you know that you're getting on board is that you stop pretending. And the way that you know that you're not pretending anymore, which is just a heads up, the main point of this whole passage, is what he says in verse 8 when he tells the crowd, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Right, now, now, fruit is a, a metaphor that the Bible uses frequently uh, to, to the distinguishing characteristics of our lives. Right? Apple trees produce apples, Orange trees produce oranges, and people uh, produce attitudes and actions. Right? So while currently the people are characterized by actions and attitudes that are sinful and rebellious against God, genuine repentance will result in attitudes and actions that honor and obey God. Right? And John warns them, don't begin to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't don't just assume that because you're Jews, you must be good to go. And he tells them if God was just looking for Jewish people, he could make some out of the stones that are lying there on the ground. No, again, as we saw in Malachi, God is after our hearts. Right? And the time has come where he demands our hearts. And so verse 9, John gives a solemn warning when he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So just as a, a gardener removes a tree that refuses to bear good fruit, so the Lord is about to remove from among his people and judge those who do not have a sincere love for him. And so there is an urgent need for the people to respond to this message. And we're going to see how they respond as we pick up uh, one last time, beginning in verse 10. It says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation." And be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So in light of John's message, in verse 10, people begin to ask, what should we do? What does repentance look like for us? And so John gives them specific answers for their individual situations. And so as he addresses the common people, uh, he tells them that, that if anyone has more than they need, whether it be clothing or money, that they need to share with those who are unable to provide for themselves. Uh, he points them away from selfishness to care uh, for other people around them. Next, some tax collectors approach and ask John what they should do. 
Now, tax collectors, you probably already know, were some of the most hated people in the ancient world. You see, they worked for the empire. They were responsible for collecting local, regional, and imperial taxes, which usually added up to a lot. And then they had a certain amount of freedom on top of that to steal, I mean, to charge a fee in order to pay their own salary. And they were notorious for being greedy. But as they hear and respond to God's message, or to John's message, they ask what repentance looks like for them. And John tells them that they should only collect the amount of money that they are authorized to collect, not take advantage of people. Then finally, some soldiers come and ask John what repentance looks like for them. Now, in our society today, law enforcement is characterized by a responsibility to protect and serve the community. But in the ancient world, law enforcement was often characterized by corruption, as soldiers abused their authority for their own benefit. And so you can imagine being stopped by a soldier and being told, listen, I can give you a $200 fine, or you can pay me $50 and I'll leave you alone. This is the kind of thing that would happen. But now some of these soldiers are responding to John's message. And John tells them that repentance for them looks like not abusing their, their authority and being content with their wages. Now in verse 15, we see that over time, people come to be in expectation. Right? John has been preaching about the coming judgment of God, and lots of people are responding to his message. There's a feeling of excitement in the air. This is something new and unusual. And many people are starting to wonder if John might actually be the Messiah. Maybe that's what's going on here. But John answers very clearly that he is not. And he tells them in verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so John points the people away from himself into one who is coming after him, who is much greater than he is. So much greater that John isn't even worthy to untie his sandals, which in the ancient world was a job for the very lowest of servants. And so John's point is that however great people may think he is, the coming Messiah is going to be so much greater that John is not even worthy to be his lowest servant. While John only baptizes with water, the Messiah will have the ability to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, which, which appear to be references to salvation and judgment. And then in verse 17, John gives one final illustration about what the coming Messiah will do. He compares him to a harvester who threshes out grain on the threshing floor. As he, he threshes his grain with his winnowing fork and tosses it up in the air, the, the grain falls back to the ground and the, out, the outer husk, the chaff, gets blown off. And then when all the grain has been gathered in and the, the threshing floor is just covered with chaff, the, the harvester cleans or clears the floor by burning all of the chaff, which again is a, a picture of judgment. And so Luke summarizes in verse 18 that with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. As we've seen previously in, in predictions of who John would be, John is heralding the news that the Messiah is coming to execute justice and to deliver his people from their enemies and to make all things right again. That process begins with his own people who need to repent of their sin to be ready for the Messiah's coming. 
This is what John's ministry was all about, as he traveled around presumably for several months, if not uh, for over a year. But then in verses 19 and 20, we see how John's ministry came to an end. Luke tells us that Herod the Tetrarch, referring to Herod Antipas, had John thrown into prison because he had reproved Herod because of his brother's wife, Herodias. Now, you've got to understand that the entire Herod family was a hot mess, like a, a walking, talking, living Jerry Springer show kind of mess. Uh, time doesn't permit us to go into all the details. You can Google it uh, if you would like to learn more about that. But they were a violent, wicked, twisted bunch. But as it pertains to this detail in particular, Mark gives us more information in chapter 6 of his gospel account, and we know more from historical sources. Herodias is actually Herod's niece, and she's currently married to his brother Philip, or was, I should say, married to his brother Philip. Uh, but in time, Antipas convinced her to divorce Philip and to marry him instead, which, as you can probably imagine, was a major scandal among the Jewish people. And John called him out on it publicly. Right, here you are, supposed to be the leader over God's people, and yet you are more wicked than any of them. Right, but instead of repenting, Herod doubled down on his sin. He hardened his heart, and he had John thrown into prison in order to silence him. And Luke portrays this, this decision at the end of the, the passage as the cherry on top of all of Antipas's evil. You see, John is a legitimate messenger from God. And so to treat John with contempt is to treat God with contempt, which is no small matter. And so uh, while this ends John's public ministry, the good news is not quite the end of his role in the story which we'll come to see on later down the line. But in our passage this morning, we see that the ministry of John the Baptist was characterized by a call, a proclamation for people to be baptized in a demonstration of repentance in preparation for the Messiah who would bring forgiveness for his people's sins. And what we see here is something that we see over and over in the Bible, which is that genuine faith is always expressed through a lifestyle of obedience. Right? Genuine faith is always expressed through a lifestyle of obedience. Right? As people believe John's message, they respond by getting baptized. But John is also very much aware that you can, you can be baptized without actually believing. Again, for centuries at this point, God's people have been going through the motions spiritually in worship. Right? It doesn't take anything to go out and get baptized by John real quick and then move on with life as if nothing actually happened. But that's not ultimately what it's about. Right? And apart from truly believing John's message, these people are simply getting wet. Right? There's, there's, there's nothing of, of substance happening simply through the act of baptism. And so John is clear that genuine faith must be expressed through the fruit of of our lives. And this is a message that we need today just as much as they did in John's day. See, as, as John prepared, to, the prepared people to respond to what Jesus was going to do, we are called to respond to what Jesus has done. But much like the people in John's day, people today often assume that, that some type of superficial action is all that God is looking for. But the truth is that God calls us to place our faith in what Jesus has done to save us, 
through his life, death, and resurrection. And the genuineness of our faith will be, dist- will be demonstrated through repentance, right? If we believe, then we will, will respond in repentance. And so the fact is that you may have gone to VBS as a kid, or you may have been baptized, or you may post uh, all kinds of religious memes on Facebook, or you may have a cross tattooed on your arm. But the reality is that apart from genuine faith in Christ, it comes to nothing. Friends, if you are not actively following Jesus in your life, if you are living in ongoing disobedience to his commands, then you do not have the faith that he is looking for. And that's the the message that John is giving. In that case, we're relying on something that we have done to make us okay with God, rather than trusting and responding to what he has done for us in Christ. As in the Great Commission, Jesus calls us to make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. And so when we believe the gospel, we're baptized into the community of God's people, and then we spend the rest of our lives helping one another to follow Jesus by obeying his commands as they're found in the scriptures. And anything less than that is not genuine Christianity. And we always want to be clear that we are not saved based on what we do or what we don't do. We're saved by grace through faith alone, but the Bible is equally clear that genuine faith will always be revealed by what we do or we don't do. And so if you realize that your spirituality has only been superficial, then my prayer is that this morning you will recognize and respond to the good news of Jesus this morning and that you will bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Let's pray together.